Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. In the spring of 1992, representatives of grassroots organizations from all over the world gathered in Orford, Quebec. They met under the aegis of a Montreal group called Interculture to consider the question of sustainable development. Is it possible? And more importantly, is it desirable? The answer to both questions was on the whole a resounding no. Development, most of the speakers argued, is the dictation of the dominant world system, and as such it can never be the starting point for the dialogue between cultures that interculture was founded to promote. David Cayley was at the conference, and he's based this series on the interviews he recorded there. Tonight we present part four of The Earth is Not an Ecosystem by David Cayley. In September of 1989, 60,000 people from all over India converged on New Delhi to protest what they called the recolonization of the country and to initiate, they said, a second struggle for independence. Forty years before, at the end of the first struggle for independence, India had stood in front of the dazzling prospect of development and modernization. Gandhi was dead and his dream of a rural, decentralized, uniquely Indian civilization shunted aside. Rapid industrial development and Green Revolution-style agricultural modernization would be the guiding aims of state policy. By the time the demonstrators in Delhi called for a second independent struggle, the fruits of this policy were already evident. A new urban middle-class India had come into existence, but the old India of villages, peasant agriculture, forest-dwelling tribal peoples, and all the rest still remained, and increasingly these two societies were crowding against each other in the same limited ecological space. This cultural and ecological friction is the subject of tonight's program. The speaker is Indian scholar-activist Smitu Kotari, the co-founder of an organization called Lokayan. Lokayan was born in the 70s as a project of the Center for the Study of Developing Societies. The center had been set up a decade before to create a critical sociology of modern India. Lokayan was a product of the period after 1975, when Prime Minister Indira Gandhi declared a state of emergency, imprisoned political opponents, and assumed virtually dictatorial powers. This sparked widespread popular resistance and eventually led to a decisive repudiation of Mrs. Gandhi and her Congress party in federal elections in 1977. It also led to the coalescence of various new social movements, and it was in order to bring these new social currents into contact, says Smidu Katari, that Lokayan was created. In 1977-78, a number of us had in fact been traveling and meeting with many of these people who had been at the forefront of the resistance to uh, the emergency. And it was through this process, really, that people at the center became sensitized and felt the need to um, initiate this, this, this dialogue. And in fact, Lokayan crudely translated means dialogue of the people. And initially, it was meant to revolve around the organizing of dialogues, of representatives of movements and groups amongst themselves. There would be dialogues between representatives of these movements and concerned citizens in the cities. 
it would be dialogues on specific themes like science and technology, like tribal rights, like women's rights, like displacement, uh, and so on. And then after about uh, two and a half or three years, we decided to independently establish Lokayan. In 1985, Lokayan's work was recognized with the Right Livelihood Award, sometimes called the Alternative Nobel Prize. This work has also expanded to include not just dialogue between social movements, but also dialogue between different systems of thought. There ought to be a dialogue between traditions, that the best way that one could imbibe and learn was by, by having a dialogue as equals, where you could accept what you felt you could absorb and reject what you thought you couldn't absorb. We have always, in fact, felt, particularly, for instance, in our critique of modern science and technology, that uh, these systems were imposed almost militaristically on our societies, that there was not a dialogue between traditions of science, there was not a dialogue in traditions of knowledge, that the modern knowledge system or the modern, modern scientific endeavor posited itself as being the absolute truth and that all other sciences and all other technologies and all other forms of organizing society and all other social cohesions were all quote-unquote backward. They were all transitory. They were all superstitious and so on and so forth. And, theref that, that, and that therefore they had to somehow be manipulated. They had to be molded. They had to be repressed. And that in fact progress would only be the, the clear hegemony of these modern systems. So one lineage was clearly this, that we really needed to re-establish the dialogue as the, as the mode of relating our world with many other worlds, and those worlds amongst themselves. In the 12 years of Lokayan's existence, Smitu Katari has seen scattered regional resistance to development coalesce into a confident and assertive national movement. In recent years, he says, three events in particular have manifested this new reality. In September 1989, about 60,000 people from across the country voluntarily came together to oppose development. They were people from communities and movements across the country who had been adversely impacted on by development processes and by development projects, who came together in an event of solidarity. After a day-long uh, series of events uh, of collective celebration and uh, sharing and so on, they dispersed. Uh, in December, many of, many of the representatives of these 60,000 people met again and um, formed a, a loose affiliation called Janvikas Andolan, which uh, roughly translated means movement for people's development, movement for people's awakening. The Janvikas Andolan has subsequently had over a dozen meetings across the country in trying to involve more and more groups and more and more people in concentric circles with the core of the concentric circles made up of representatives of communities themselves and then the other concentric circles of supporters, of other organizations, of organizations working on single issues, of uh, uh, professionals who are, who are, who are helping who are counter-experts, who are, who are working with these communities, and so on and so forth. So that's been one major initiative that continues today. The second 
event was in December 1990, when about 400 people representing 100 organizations came to Delhi to meet the president. And what was significant about this event was a new confidence that we all witnessed. There was no more of that fear and subservience and dependence on officialdom in which you hang your head when you're talking to officials or when you're talking to even a lowly police officer. There were no resolutions, there were no charter of demands to the president or to for the press. Basically, they came to announce a new resolve before the president, before the nation. As they said in one of their public meetings, that we have come to stop the undeclared war against our lands, against our lifestyles, against our lives. And I think that in that action, they were really challenging the conventional meanings of, of freedom, of progress, of equity, of participation. And it was at, at this program that they announced this collective action under the broad rubric of our rule in our villages. Subsequently, of course, these movements have all gone back and they have deepened and intensified their actions in their own, in their own villages. They have uh, fought extremely significant struggles in recovering access and control over forests, over lands, over waters. And on numerous occasions, they have faced uh, extremely brutal state repression. They have been um, labeled time and time again as being anti-national. And some of us who have been involved, for instance, in, a, in, in resistance against uh, a series of dams have been called anti-national. And it's interesting. It's an interesting development in, um, in post-independence India where a criticism of a development project is now construed as being an anti-national activity. But I think it's also important to understand that these are not new initiatives, that they are part of a longer history of resistance in India, history that goes back at least 150 years, when in tribal and non-tribal areas across the country, people spontaneously organized themselves against the British. In the mid-19th century, the British legislated the Indian Forest Act, and with one stroke of the pen, they appropriated to the, to the state all of India's forests. And with one stroke of the pen, therefore, they, they made those who were living in the forest and those whose lives were integrally linked and culturally linked to the forest, they made them criminals in their own land. Because any intrusion in the forest, any use of forest resources, was construed as an act of robbery uh, under this legislation. And it's interesting that in, even in the post-independence period, after India became independent, the Indian government, the post-independence government, adopted the same set of legislations almost without change. So that a number of legislations that govern India's people, particularly that are relevant to the use of natural resources, are those legislations that were made by the British for reasons of the British state and for the British state's own, own needs. The third event was just a month ago in, um, in April. About 15,000 people from all over the country came to Delhi to protest against the policies of the IMF and the World Bank. And the movement came together under a common slogan that this is the beginning of the second fight for independence.
arguing that over the last 40 years, a whole series of policies had been brought into place which were recolonizing India. And that the new economic policy changes that had taken place and the new conditionalities that were accepted, conditionalities that were imposed by the IMF and the World Bank, amounted to selling away of the country and selling away of the priorities of the country away from meeting the priorities of the majority of the country. And that therefore there was need to openly express collective protest against this shift that had taken place, not just over the last six, eight months, but over the last five or six years or, or about the last decade, since India has very slowly liberalized its economy. So these are, these are just three of several similar events that, to me, represent a growing unrest in the country, a growing realization that we have had enough, uh, a growing realization that rights will not be given to you on a platter, that they will have to be seized, that your spaces, the, your creative spaces will have to be constructed by you by reasserting control and access over productive natural resources. Can you give me some idea of the range of movements, of points of view that are within this broad, you've called it a culture of resistance? I basically talk about these processes as being cultures uh, in the plural. I mean, they're sort of cultures of resistance because they encompass a, a fairly diverse range. I mean, they range from movements that are today seeking secession, seeking separation from the Indian state. I'm not here making any value judgments because many of us believe that we should not be breaking up into smaller and smaller nation states. But in fact, one should be going in another direction, which is to soften the boundaries that were created at independence and to reestablish the efficacy of uh, a subcontinental civilization by bringing home to the peoples of the subcontinent that their autonomy and their identities and their, and their diversities would be protected and respected. But nonetheless, because you have an increasingly centralizing process, because you have a process that is increasingly hegemonizing in economic terms, on terms that are being set not just necessarily in, in Delhi anymore, but in, in Washington and, and other places outside of India, these cultures of resistance have to take various forms. And one form that they are taking is to secede from the country. The second form that they are taking is uh, seeking greater political autonomy seeking a redrawing of internal boundaries, arguing that the boundary-making exercises at independence had been done on, on a linguistic basis and had therefore discriminated against various other identities and minorities that had historically clear rights and clear control over productive natural resource systems. We then have movements that are more specifically opposed to developmental interventions, opposed to large dams, industries, the siting of industries, um, military bases, for instance, in the southern, south, eastern part of the country. For the last uh, seven years, there has been an extremely militant movement of uh, fisher folk and uh, marginal and middle peasants against a missile base that is being proposed by the Indian government. Uh, 
And these people have mobilized themselves into a remarkable movement in which um, even small children play a role in warning the communities when any official jeep or official car is approaching, for instance, or any official is approaching that area. And immediately there are thousands of people who have put up gates, thousands of people then who, who go and guard these gates and restrict and prevent all officials from coming into this concentration of villages. So there are those movements that are more, more specifically responding to the direct aggression or the direct uh, expropriation of resources. Then there are those movements that are, in a sense, fighting for, for the greater accountability of, um, of the government and of corporations. A very good example is Bhopal, where for uh, the last uh, eight, seven and a half, eight years, you have had uh, communities who were directly affected by the Bhopal gas tragedy and others across the country who have been living with mini Bhopals all their lives, coming together and resisting the pollution. There are then movements that um, are more, more city-based, which might be one might call single-issue-based. They're working on bonded labor, they're working on various ecological issues, they're working on women's issues, and so on. So it's a, it's a fairly diverse range of, of movements and groups in the country. These movements, Smitu Katari says, are displaying an increased political confidence. But this does not mean, he cautions, that they are as yet capable of spelling out a consistent political program. I think they haven't even fully worked out uh, within themselves that when you say our rule in our villages, where do you delink? What do you do about those resources that you are already dependent on? For instance, roads, for instance, transportation, for instance, electricity. Therefore, if you have to have selective linkage, who will set the terms of that selective linkage? So there are a whole range of rather complicated political, social, economic interrelationships and linkages that would ha will still have to be resolved in practice. But I think what is fundamental is the fact that people have reached the point where they have, they have collectively and increasingly begun to say no to development. They've begun to say no to outsider intervention that is, that is exploitative, that is intrusive, that is corrosive. A current example of this passionate no to development is popular opposition to the damming of the Narmada River. The Narmada rises in central India, in the state of Madhya Pradesh, and passes through Maharashtra and Gujarat on its way to the Arabian Sea, north of Bombay. Once, the residents of the Narmada Valley had a religious duty once in their lifetime to make a pilgrimage the entire length of the river. Today, it is the object of massive irrigation and hydroelectric development. The Narmada Dam project as a, as a project, as a whole project, is uh, attempting to build 30 large dams and 3,000 medium and small dams on one single river in central India. If all these projects are eventually built and the proposal is to finish them by 2025, they would displace approximately 2 million people. One of the first dam projects in this chain of dams is the Sardar Sarovar project in, in Gujarat. That is approximately 40% complete. That will directly displace 100,000 people. But as we have discovered over the last few years, that will also displace about 300,000 people additionally 
when the canals are built, when um, lands that have been taken away for rehabilitation that were supporting other families, those families who would get displaced as a consequence, sanctuaries that have been uh, announced which will dehouse uh, 108 villages. So the movement that is now... What do forest sorry. sanctuaries have to do with the dams? It's a master plan, is it? No, because uh, some extremely valuable forests are being submerged as part of the compensatory process that the governments agreed to after pressure from uh, the movements was, I mean, the reaction that they had was that, oh, yes, we will do compensatory afforestation. And one of the things that we are doing, look at how um, concerned we are, is to announce a new sanctuary. So then more people lose out on that. That's right. And that 108 villages are actually dependent on that forest. A large number of tribal families who do not have legal titles to that land, but who have historically worked with that land, been the stewards of that land. So the movement that is now approximately five years old and which represents about three quarters of the population that is to be submerged has been um, increasingly under siege. A little over a month ago, about 400 policemen entered the, forcibly entered the first village that is going to be submerged in the state of Maharashtra, a village called Manibeli. And in this one action, they provided a cover for a large mob of people to begin the demolition of those houses of people who were opposing the project. In the last month, police have now moved into about over 20 villages and attempted to try and create a climate of intimidation and, uh, and fear in an effort to try and force these villagers to leave their villages. So we have reached a point, as one has reached in several other parts of the country, of open confrontation with the, with the government. And the government is unwilling at this stage to sit down in a dialogue. We have had for the last three years one very simple demand. We have produced before the government and before the nation a series of reports, counter-reports, that clearly demonstrate that there is no land to rehabilitate everyone, that there are very serious environmental impacts that have not even been studied, and that economically the dam is not viable. So therefore, on social, environmental, and economic grounds, the dam is a disaster. And all that we have asked for is that because we have produced all these reports, most of which have not been countered in any effective manner by the government or by the World Bank, that there should be a comprehensive review of the project. That's all we have demanded. And even that basic constitutional right has not been granted to us. So it has moved into a situation in which the government, in its cynicism is, uh, or in its uh, wisdom, sees the, that the only way that it can, uh, quote-unquote, deal with the movement, the resistance, is to crush it. Now, when you said <clears> that the police created a cover for others to come in and destroy the houses. This would have been supporters of the dam? These are pro-dam people, yes. So it's also a civil conflict? Oh, yes, because there are... Um, Who's in favor? The state that is to get benefits from the project has had, the, uh, has had five, six years of con almost continuous drought in parts of the state. And the politicians in the state have used this opportunity and uh, with very effective propaganda, 
gone around the state stating that this project is the lifeline of Gujarat, that this project will bring much needed water for drinking water, for irrigation in the state as a whole. And actually, 88% of the most drought-prone areas of, this, of the state don't get a single drop of water from the project. But nonetheless, the propaganda has been so successful that a, an entire uh, quote-unquote vested interest has, has built up in the state of Gujarat uh, that supports the dam. And people from these interests are mobilized by the Gujarat government to break uh, meetings that are taking place of the movement, to come in situations like now and uh, start demolishing houses. I mean, obviously, the government, if it did, if it did the demolitions itself, would uh, face tremendous, op uh, you know, tremendous opposition, even by those who are at the moment supporting the project. But if if some other individuals are doing it, they can always say that this is a civil affair. By the summer of 1991, opposition to the Narmada dams had reached such a pitch that the World Bank did what the Indian government had refused to do, ordered an independent review. The World Bank had already dispersed $450 million in loans and credits for the project, and applications for $440 million more are still outstanding. At the same time, Japanese foreign aid loans to the project were actually cancelled. The bank's review was headed by American Bradford Morse, a former head of the United Nations Development Program. His deputy was Vancouver lawyer Thomas Berger, who conducted the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline Inquiry in the 70s and later headed the Alaskan Native Review Commission. Their senior advisors were also Canadians, anthropologist writer Hugh Brody and water expert Donald Gamble. The review reported in June of 1992. Its findings, despite diplomatic wording, amounted to outright condemnation, both on the question of resettlement and on the question of environmental impact. Four months later, the World Bank announced that it was continuing its support for the project, regardless of the review and of calls from Canada, the US, Japan, Germany, Australia and Norway for a suspension of support. Thomas Berger and Bradford Morse responded with a five-page letter accusing the bank of deliberately misrepresenting the findings of their review. The bank's motives, fear of default on shaky loans, pressure from the Indian government, etc., remain a matter of speculation. So, for now, the Narmada projects are proceeding, driven on, says Smitu Katari, by a powerful inertia. In countries like India, you have built an irrigation bureaucracy and it's a vast bureaucracy. Engineers today sit with contour maps of the country and try and locate spots where they can put up the next dam. I mean, it's as simple as getting a group of economists together and doing a cost-benefit analysis and producing a design and going ahead and building the project. So they have to be perpetual builders. So despite the fact that there is growing international awareness, and I think the World Bank and institutions like the World Bank don't want to get into controversial projects like large dams, they continue to support these projects. I mean, the bank is involved in, in almost a dozen projects in the country right at this moment. So I don't think that just because the climate of awareness has increased, we have yet reached a point where the large dam as a technological intervention is in its last throes of life. At the same time, I think that it's going to be very difficult to build some of the other dams on the, on the Narmada River because 
what it has created in India is tremendous awareness. And um, even if in this project we would have to eventually come to some compromise, though I personally believe that uh, we might also actually stop the project because both it might collapse under its own financial weight, but also because the movement will reach a point where there will be so many sacrifices, where so many people will be, God forbid, killed, that uh, it, there's going to be a climate of public opinion, hopefully, that will be built nationally and internationally to uh, look for alternatives. And I think this is the most fundamental problem with most of these projects, that you do not look at alternatives. You do not look for more sustainable solutions. In, for instance, the, the command area downstream from the dam, there are at least 50 distinct ecosystems which require 50 distinct solutions. I mean, we are not saying this, that the solutions to large dams are 100 small dams. They, they, they might be 50 different or 100 different programs of land and water management. The diversity of ecosystems should define the diversity of intervention and that those interventions must be in control of local communities. That you cannot have these huge centralized projects with uh, complex computer modeling that will monitor the flow of water to every single village. It is a contradiction in terms. One reason why the World Bank continues to finance the Narmada projects, despite this contradiction, may have to do with its unwillingness to undermine India's compliance with what is called structural adjustment. In 1991, the Indian government, at the end of its foreign exchange reserves, gained access to a $7 billion line of credit from the International Monetary Fund and soft loans from the World Bank in exchange for a package of reforms, the so-called structural adjustment. These include deregulation and liberalization of the economy, devaluation of the rupee, and drastic reductions in state bureaucracy. A recent report estimates that of 21 million public sector jobs, as many as 11 million might disappear. It was these reforms that caused the protesters in Delhi to speak of a recolonization of India. Globe and Mail writer John Stackhouse reports seeing graffiti in Delhi saying, IMF quit India, an evocation of the anti-British Quit India campaign of 1942. Smitu Katari views the reforms in the wider context of globalization. This might sound conspiratorial, but there is an emerging nexus between transnational corporations, international financial institutions, and global and national economic elites. I have been looking much more carefully at the history of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the so-called Uruguay Round. And I feel extremely pained that we have not had across the world a groundswell, an, up, an upsurge, an outcry, because what Arthur Dunkel, who is the um, Secretary General of, um, of GATT, is proposing is nothing short of a prescription for the recolonization of the planet. But the GATT thing is not just serious in the context of the so-called third world. It's serious, I would argue, even for the first world. Because here are a set of proposals that are going to hegemonize development and hegemonize technology 
in a way in which even people in the north will have very little control. How is this going to work? What is the proposal you're talking about? Well, the proposal is at uh, several levels. One part of the proposal of GATT, for instance, is uh, what are called uh, TRIPS, intellectual property rights. Now, the intellectual property rights are basically patents which would be required for any production process in the world. And currently, what is being proposed is that these patents should be held by those companies or corporations that have had the production possibilities or that have production capabilities or that have got access to those resources. Now, therefore, for instance, if, let us say, a corporation in America has been able to synthesize a particular chemical, now if that chemical has been found in nature anywhere else in the world, if this company holds the patent, no other government or no other community or no other society can independently make a patent on that particular process. And they have practically done this for almost all known chemicals, almost all known production processes. I mean, as you know, there has been in the last 40 years and of course much before that, but much more intensively and in a much more organized way, a flight of genetic resources from the south to the north. India, for instance, had uh, 40,000 varieties of rice at the beginning of the century. A good proportion of that was stored in the Indian Rice Research Institute. And in the uh, 70s, the whole Rice Research Institute was wound up and the entire genetic stock was taken to the Philippines, to the International Rice Research Institute. And from there, it was brought to the United States. And so India's genetic resource base on rice is actually now residing in the United States, where a majority of India's agricultural land that grows rice now is growing uh, hybrid seeds that are controlled by transnational corporations that are based in the United States or in Europe. So you have a, a, a process whereby a few corporations are attempting to try and control the genetic stock of the planet. The second proposal is to similarly have control over uh, services, for instance, insurance or transportation. I mean, if a Japanese company wants to show a pornographic film, the absolutely cheap, cheapest and dirtiest pornographic film in India, and if it can find 500 Indian exhibitors of that film, no Indian legislation, for instance, would have any meaning because it's, we cannot block that film because that would be a violation of the principles of free trade. The Thai government, for instance, a little over a year ago, decided to ban um, the advertising of cigarettes and ban all foreign, foreign cigarette brands from the country. Marlboro and Winston took the Thai government to the GAD adjudicatory panel. And the GATT adjudicatory panel ruled that the Thai government must restore the marketing of uh, foreign cigarettes in Thailand and uh, restore the advertising of foreign brands in the interests of free trade. And if they don't? GATT can then impose barriers, trade barriers, on anything else. You mean a blockade? Yes, a blockade. This is in the proposals. The economic blockade is in the GATT proposals. Now, of course, you can argue that it, is, it can be used the other way also. I mean, for instance, GATT has also pulled up the United States government for being extremely protectionist in, in the context of, let us say, textile imports from the third world. But who controls these economic institutions today? 
the Indian rupee is not a powerful currency, the dollar is, the yen is, the mark is, the pound is, and so on. After all, free trade is not free. There are people who yeah. control these, these institutions, who control these processes. And unless we um, do something extremely sort of urgently and extremely seriously about it, you and I are going to be swamped by these corporations and by these economic interests. Globalization, in Smitu Katari's view, is but one facet of a complex crisis into which India has been slipping for some time. He says that this crisis has a number of dimensions which, taken together, amount to what he calls a civilizational crisis. Development as we have known it in the post-independence period is reaching a dead end. There is an increasing recognition that the process of internal colonization that was necessitated as the only option available if one had to industrialize because we could not go and colonize other areas of the world is uh, reaching a point where either there are no more resources to exploit or that communities who have historically depended on these resources for their survival are saying no. Secondly, I think there is the crisis of the state itself. And it's a very complex crisis because at one level there is a need for the state. Who will mediate if there are contending claims to the same natural resource base? Who will mediate if there are a whole range of external forces who want to come and uh, impose their control over parts of India? So we are in a peculiar dilemma in which at one level we feel that we need the state. We need the state to be actually playing its more ideal role of a non-partisan arbiter. But at another level we also have a re recognition and a realization that the state is not an independent actor. That the state has been acting on behalf of certain interests in society, that it is acting on behalf primarily of the elites. But because it also has a democratic face, it has to play multiple roles. And I think the fact that the state is amenable to playing multiple roles gives us some chinks, gives us some democratic possibilities within the present system to protect the spaces of resistance. So I do not um, support friends who would argue for a total negation of the state. I don't think that that is at the moment feasible, particularly in a society that over the last 40 years has become so criminalized, where in so many parts of the country, where the state has increasingly become weaker, it has become really the rule of the jungle, where mobs and uh, landlords' armies and various other criminal elements really are, are effectively ruling. Now in a situation like that, the only mechanisms by which we can resist these criminal elements, these criminal forces, is either by mobilizing oneself or by appealing to the democratic institutions of the state to intervene. And quite often they have intervened in the favor of, because enough public pressure has been built up. So we have this strange, rather perplexing, paradoxical situation that we we live with. So that's one, I think, very fundamental and a very serious crisis. The second is really a, a crisis of identities. India 
has been historically endowed with one of the most diverse cultural and ecological systems on the planet. Whether you look at it from the point of view of its cultural diversity, whether you look at it from the point of view of its linguistic diversity, which is linked very much to its cult cultural diversity, whether you look at it in terms of the multiple influences that have influenced very distinct cultural traditions, it is an incredibly diverse civilization. What has happened over the last, much more intensively over the last 40 years, is that a group of people, in the name of Hinduism, which itself is a recent construct, I mean, it was a construct of the British, to try and, in its own terms, for its own political purposes, it had to try and come to grips with this diversity of, of Hindu sects that were all over the country, that had thousands of, uh, of godheads and thousands of gods and goddesses and, and so on. It had to bring all this under a common rubric. So British historians uh, created this, this thing called Hinduism. So that's like saying that these Haida people and these Cherokee people and these Seminoles are all Indians. That's right. That's right. I mean, the same. they did the same thing with the construction of the word tribe. The tribes in India do not see themselves as tribes. They see themselves as the Gond and the Bheel, just as the Seneca and the Cayuga and the, and the Sioux and, and so on. They see themselves as, as, as their identity, not as tribe. At the culinary level, it's the creation of curry powder. Uh, I mean, they, 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 they had to go back or they had to go to their homes and, and, and make something Indian. So they had to create this little homogeneous uh, mix of spices, which they could throw three teaspoonsfuls of in a pot of potatoes and say, we've made Indian curry. It's the same mindset. So what has happened with the construction of Hinduism is that a group of people have adopted this notion of Hinduism and are now attempting and have attempted over the last uh, few decades to give uh, greater content to this myth that there is something called Hinduism to the point where they're trying to discover a holy book and uh, a holy man, a holy leader, much like Islam and Christianity. And in an effort to try and then create social legitimacy for this construct, they have rather successfully been able to use various cultural forms. And uh, the fact that uh, other communities and other minorities and other cultural groups have become more assertive and argue that therefore Hinduism is under siege, that it is under threat, they have been able to successfully mobilize fairly significant political opinion. And because many of these people are politically powerful, they have been able, able to at times get the consent of the Indian state to their designs and have increasingly tried to suppress this cultural diversity. So I think the other major crisis that we will see unfolding over the next many decades, and it's not just going to be a crisis, it's going to be extremely violent conflicts across the, uh, the state. And I would, I would say not just the Indian state, but across the Indian subcontinent, because the same thing at a very different level is happening in Pakistan where one version, one interpretation of Islam is being imposed on the Islamic diversity that existed in and that exists in what is Pakistan. So how is this all going to really resolve itself? Particularly in a situation in which the modernizers want to try and build a secular modern India 
in which, much like the creation of Europe, they want to limit the church and limit monarchy to another space where, in fact, they will not interfere in statecraft and in state civil society interactions. And it's not feasible. I mean, as Gandhiji had, had said, uh, those who talk about separating religion and politics understand neither religion nor politics. So it's going to be very, very tricky because these Hindu groups, for instance, have put their people in positions of power 40 years ago, such that, or 30 years ago, or 20 years ago, such that in almost every sphere of business, bureaucracy, you have got in senior positions now people who believe in this um, Hindu fundamentalist ideology. That's the second um, crisis and, and a point of increasing conflict that I see. The third is what one might call the ecological crisis. Because again, a society like India that has, that continues to have such enormous uh, genetic and biological diversity, a lot of it is today under attack. The erosion and degradation of our uh, ecological diversity has been astounding. A lot of it has been necessitated by the model of industrialization, which has both intensively and extensively depended on the extraction of these natural resources. Now, the important thing in a country like India is that the priority of environmental issues is not the non-availability of non-renewable resources or the pollution of renewable resources like water and air. It's not acid rain. It's not global warming. It's not the dumping of toxic wastes. But most fundamentally, it is the fact that with every degradation of a natural resource, hundreds of thousands of people who have depended intrinsically and intensely on the sustainability of that resource system for their survival, for their subsistence, for their sustenance, for their identities, I would say, they get adversely impacted on. Therefore, this process of industrial development is directly creating impoverishment, is directly creating the breakup, the large-scale breakup of communities the large-scale disruption of uh, social cohesion, the large-scale delegitimation of cultural diversity. And therefore, to me, the most fundamental aspect of this crisis is the fact that millions of people are losing their access and control over a productive natural resource base that has historically given them sustenance. Now, maybe... As many people argue, one could justify this if an alternative had been possible. But there is no alternative. Where do these people go? They become perpetual migrants within the rural areas. And of course, in, in places like Bombay and Calcutta and every city, in, in every large city in India, they become uh, members of the, uh, of the populations that live in slums and on the pavements. So they do not really have a life anymore, I think, of any, any dignity. So you have effectively, therefore, taken people away from a life of social cohesion and dignity to a life of penury and marginalization. So that, in a way, is the, is the third rather significant crisis. And I think that this is going to become more and more intense uh, 
as India liberalizes its economy, as it uh, structurally adjusts to meet its balance of payments crisis. And finally, we, we face a most profound crisis that can best be characterized as the crisis of the middle class. That you have a group of people that has grown phenomenally in the last 20 years. It's uh, almost 100 million people now, one of the largest markets in the world, that has become so parasitical and so defensive of sustaining the status quo, of maintaining the status quo. And they have become impenetrable almost to these softer uh, and more serious social and ecological and cultural concerns. They are people who are mostly ahistorical. They are people who are being fed by all kinds of modern myths, including the modern myths of Hinduism. There are people who are who are buying into the consumerist culture and are therefore becoming both depoliticized and ahistorical. And therefore, there are people who are not really concerned about the long-term future of the country, the long-term future of the country's um, uh, of its of its autonomy and of the fact that it is part of a a, a longer uh, historical civilization. And I think in that sense, if one was to try and provide an overall rubric that would reflect these crises, I would say that India is, is currently going through a civilizational crisis. As I listen to you, I have trouble in my mind not imagining what a Judeo-Christian tradition calls Armageddon. Mm -hmm. I mean, a potential for incredible violence. And also feeling your situation in the midst of that. Frankly, David, there is no, there is no way out of it. I don't know whether it is going to be an Armageddon, but there definitely is going to be an intensification of social conflict. There's going to be an intensification of violence. But I, at the same time, would like to say very strongly that um, precisely because there has been a history of democratic tradition, there has been a history of resistance. There have, has been these cultures of resistance. We will come to a point where more and more people will recognize the India that they are legitimating, the more dominant processes that they are legitimating. And I feel confident that if not in the next few years, at least in the next five or maybe in the next decade, you will have, just as you had, and it was quite unanticipated at that moment, just as you had a, a resistance to Mrs. Gandhi's authoritarianism that became a national movement that finally led to a situation in which the Congress party got uh, summarily thrown out for the first time in, um, in, in post-independence history. Just like you, have, you, you had that kind of groundswell of, res of, of resistance. And yes, of course, that groundswell then got co-opted or some of it got channelized into various other... Uh, uh, regressive and destructive uh, trends, a lot of it got also channelized into these movements. A lot of it got also channelized into these, these cultures of resistance. And so I think that we do have the ground, uh, we do have the conditions, we have, do have the social conditions 
for all those little pockets of resistance to broaden and to and to link together horizontally and to try and in fact use the the fact that we have come to this pass to try and articulate a different future and maybe it will uh, it will work maybe it won't i personally um, must say that i i have hope and i uh, people like me would not put in the immense energies uh, that we do if we didn't have that hope if we didn't have that optimism if we didn't have that uh, cry uh, in our conscience On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to an interview with Indian activist Smitu Kothari of Lokayan, a New Delhi-based organization whose name means literally Dialogue of the People. The program was part four of The Earth is Not an Ecosystem, written and presented by David Cayley. We would like to thank Kalpana Das and her colleagues at Interculture for making these programs possible. Production assistants for tonight's program were Faye McPherson and Gail Brownell. Technical production, Lorne Tulk. A transcript is available for $5, $20 for the entire six-part series. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Ecosystem, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. A collection of David Cayley's earlier programs on ecology is available in book form from James Lorimer and Company. The book is called The Age of Ecology, and it's in bookstores now. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.